So let's, uh, let's think about the, uh, the subject for the afternoon. And actually, the dedication is an incredible uh, opportunity, isn't it? Just to think about a new life and, and to anticipate all that's to come for Finley. Uh, you just can't you feel it? Sort of that, that down the line moment where he says, What does my name mean? And there's an answer coming. And what about my middle name? And there's an answer coming. I don't know if, if the Rogers do this. In our house, one of the things we do, sort of a, become a family tradition now, is, is on the birthday uh, of, of any of the children, we always do the how was the birth story. Not in you know, total detail, but, but they like to hear what happened. And so we'll kind of run through the story. Uh, sometime during the birthday, usually after a meal, while we're sitting around the table, we'll talk about um, the kind of uh, really fast final appearance after a very long labor or the very perfectly timed uh, arrival or the uh, the one where the midwife said go home you're not in labor and we were so there's the emergency birth at home that's a popular one and and then the uh, cough that broke the waters that's another one and you know we've got six of these funnily enough and and these stories are all unique just like every child is unique and I think one of the reasons why children love to hear the story of their birth is because it kind of reassures them that there's something that's going on, I think, deep down inside. When you hear that story, and you, you, you can't picture it because you, you were there, but you, you, know, you, you don't remember it. But you hear the story and you kind of hear all that went on and all that was involved. And you get this sense of uh, answer to a couple of really key questions. Was I wanted? And do I belong? These are questions that all of us have, aren't they? Was I wanted? And for some of us, we know the answer was yes, we were wanted, we were planned, we were loved. For some of us, that's a painful question. We maybe know that we weren't wanted. We maybe uh, were on the receiving end of, uh, of, of comments and stories and, uh, and lines that just cut right into the very core of who we were because we discover that we weren't wanted. Maybe some of us have grown up in homes where we felt so much at home, so much love, so much acceptance and and support and encouragement. And maybe others have that sense of, well, actually, I I don't know what a good upbringing is. Because for me, it it was hard, it was difficult, it was empty, it was painful, whatever it was. But those questions are questions that I think are deep down inside all of us. Was I wanted? Do I belong? And as we think about uh, the Christian faith, what we discover is that those questions are answered absolutely emphatically for people who come to know how much God loves them, come to discover what it is to be in God's family. And we're going to look at a couple of verses. We're not going to do a a big passage, just a couple of verses uh, that really are going to, I hope, help clarify answers to that question for us. If we're in the family of God, were we wanted? Do we belong? And the book that we're going to look at is a, it's actually a letter to the Galatians. If you want to grab one of the black Bibles so that you can kind of see the words for yourself, we're on page 974, which is uh, Galatians chapter 4. I'm not going to go into all the background to this. It's a letter written to some young Christians, uh, probably about 20, 25 years after the time Jesus was, was here on earth. And so... A letter to young Christians, and it's really uh, trying to underline for them the reality of what God has done for them. And uh, this applies to us if, if we're in God's family too. And if, if you're here uh, and you're kind of going, well, I'm, I don't know what it means to be in God's family. Well, we're really glad you're here, and we'd love you to listen and, and just think, what would it be like to have that be true of me? What would it be like for, for that to be something that I could know 
deep down inside. Okay, so Galatians chapter 4, and let's just jump in at verse 4, and I'll just read a couple of verses to start with. Uh, This is what the, the writer says. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, if you let your eyes go back up just to the verse before, there's that little number three. Uh, I'm in that section, I should have said this, where it says son and heirs, a massive number four. Uh, that's, uh, that's the chapter. And we're just down underneath that little number three. It says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come. Okay, so what it's describing is, is it's saying that, that there was this past situation for all of us, a past situation where uh, in the previous section he's been saying that we as humans were enslaved, we're kind of trapped, uh, we're stuck under this, this principle of law. And so uh, in, in verse 3 he says we were enslaved under elementary principles. What it means is that all humans are in the world and we're kind of striving and we're kind of spinning our wheels trying to figure out what life is, but it kind of feels incomplete. It's because we can't quite achieve anything that's going to ultimately satisfy. We, we have moments of joy, moments of, of encouragement and so on, but, but ultimately there's that sense of surely there must be more than this. And the way that Paul, the writer, describes that is being enslaved, being trapped in a system. But when the fullness of time had come, God did something. Uh, Trinity, uh, the name of the church, you probably haven't scratched your head trying to think of, you know, how did they come up with that name? Trinity is a kind of Christian word, isn't it? But we, we love the fact that the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible reveals himself as Trinity, which means that as hard as this is to get our heads around, for all of forever, before anything existed, before there was any land or any planets or any person or anything or any material, before anything existed, there was God and he was not alone. Okay, so it's not that God was kind of sat there bored waiting for something to happen. Forever and ever in the past, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have been one God in three persons. And and that does seem like a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? But it, it, it means that God is relational at the very core of who he is. He gives and he loves and he cares and he talks and he listens and he interacts and he converses. And it's out of that beautiful, wonderful, perfect relationship that God created. It's out of that perfect harmony of the persons of, uh, of the Trinity that there is this creation all around us. A creation that is both beautiful and diverse and united. So there's, every leaf is different, every, uh, every dog's nose print apparently is different, every snowflake is different, and yet there's such a, an order, such a perfection to it. Well, it reflects the kind of God who made it. And so we've got this, this God who is, is incredibly relational and wonderful and kind, and he created everything, and then everything went wrong. It's not that he lost control, it's that we rebelled against him. We kind of shook our fists at God and said, we don't want you to be God. We want to be God. We don't want you to be in charge. We'll be in charge. We'll do things our way. 
And for the past thousands and thousands of years, the world has been corrupted and broken and damaged and messed up, honestly, by people like you and me. Saying, we don't need God, we can handle it, we can do it our way, we can make up our own gods, we can come up with our own religions, we can, we can organize things and do things and believe in ourselves and tell each other that all you need is within you and everything that you, know, you could ever possibly desire to do is just up to you to go for it. And we've kind of reinforced this idea that we don't need God. And we've ended up in a world that we all know is full of pain and brokenness and heartache, a world where the vast majority of children won't grow up in the kind of love and security that Finley has been blessed with. The world's a mess. And Paul says we were enslaved in that. We're trapped in that. We're kind of in that system and there's no way out. It's like being on a hamster wheel. We, we try and try and try and try and life goes on and it just keeps on rotating and there's no way out of that system. It, it's like an endless cycle. I think actually most of us recognize that, don't we? We see it. We watch it on the news. We, we see the evil things come again and again and the war to end all wars didn't end all wars. And all the uh, scientific breakthroughs and all the, the next steps in technology, they seem to get corrupted, don't they? They seem to be used against humanity. And so we're enslaved. We're trapped. We're stuck. And the truth is, there's no way that we ourselves can ever climb our way out of the mess that we're in. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. In our family, we, we like to sit around the table and, and talk about the birth of whoever's birthday it is. This time of year, we could sit around the Christmas tree and we could talk about the birth of whose birthday it is, right? Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's not just a nice little picture on a, on a Christmas card. It's the reality that the Bible describes to us. It's a moment where God, who is outside of all of this, stepped in. He stepped into our world. He came to where we are. And this, uh, this wonderful relationship of Father and Son and Spirit that is God, the second person there, the Son, became one of us. He went from, from being right there, enjoying the perfection of everything in heaven, and he chose to become a zygote in Mary in, in, in Nazareth. He just became a, a few cells, and those cells multiplied, and she felt the elbows, and she felt the knees, and eventually she felt the pressure, and, and out he came. And she held in her arms the Son of God. And you, you kind of scratch your head, don't you? When, you? when you hold a little baby either gender, but for some reason, you know, boys, oh man, imagine Jesus. He was a little boy once. It's, it's unbelievable. You hold this five, six, seven pound baby, boy or girl, and you think, how is it possible that the God who created everything became one of these? Why would he do it? And this passage tells us why. It says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, Born under law, to redeem those under law. And we just think about that for a moment. First of all, the fullness of time. There's all sorts of possible explanations. Why was that the right time? 
Why was it uh, in the year, what, 4 BC, it wasn't zero, about 4 BC, that it was the right time for Jesus to be born? Why not 1957? Why not 300 BC? Why was that the right time? There's all sorts of things we could think about. I'll just mention a few briefly. Uh, Some people mention the fact that he came at a time when the Roman Empire was established. And you had all these network of roads. And it was just an incredibly connected world for the first time. So it's possible to travel from, uh, from Israel to Italy to Spain to North Africa. It was possible to travel because of all these roads. And so after Jesus came and did what he did, the message spread and it spread fast. It was amazing timing. Uh, Along with that, it was a time where, uh, for the first time probably in forever, there was a common language. People, whether they were Latin-speaking or Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking or whatever their language was, they all traded and did business in Greek. And so there was this common language where people could kind of uh, go to the marketplace and, and they could do deals for horses or, you know, metal or spices or whatever, and they could do deals because they all spoke this common uh, kind of uh, marketplace Greek. And so again, because of the roads, because of the language, it was great timing. The message spread. After Jesus was on earth and he went back to heaven, he told his disciples to, to go and tell people about him. And the message literally took over the empire. And so you've got the the Roman roads, you've got the Greek language, you've got the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. All the wars had been kind of squelched. It's not a pretty thing, but the Romans were incredibly effective. And there was peace, which meant that with peace you could travel. And with travel, the message could spread. So you can look at that and say, yeah, that was perfect timing. I don't honestly think Paul was thinking about those three things. We can see that with hindsight, that it was an incredible moment in history. But what Paul's talking about as he writes this letter is the fact that for all of the history before then, humanity had been enslaved. Humanity had been pressured and burdened under this law that had been given to them, both the law of God for the nation of Israel, but just law in general for all of us. And so I I think Paul might have been more along the lines in his own mind of saying, you know what, it had been a very long time since God had promised to send a child through a woman that would deliver humanity. It had been a very long time. And all of the prophets and all of the anticipation and all of the promises, all the things that God said about the coming of his son, there was all of that. But there was also century after century after century of humans discovering that we cannot fix it ourselves. And so really, after everything had been tried, every governmental system, every possible effort that humans can come up with to try to fix their problem, every one of them had failed, every one of them was a disaster. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It was like he wanted us to get to the end of ourselves as a a race, to realize that, that we're hopeless, we can't fix this. And sometimes God wants to do that with us as individuals too. Sometimes you'll meet somebody who uh, is, is very sure of themselves and everything is in line and they're successful at work and things are going well. And you talk to them about God and uh, about the, the incredible invitation to become part of his family and it's like, nah, not bothered, not interested. And then sometimes you, you watch as over the next months and years, everything unravels. 
And as life unravels and you discover that I'm not the master of my destiny, I'm not Superman, I'm not Supergirl, I can't achieve everything I set my mind to, sometimes it's in those dark times that we discover, I need some help. I need something, and it's not coming from in here, no matter how many times Oprah tells me it's all in here. It's not. I've got to have help from outside. And so when the fullness of time had come for humanity... God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman, just like he'd promised. It was a a real human. It wasn't a kind of pretend. It wasn't a robot or a zombie. It was a real human. The son of God had truly become one of us. He became, uh, he was born under law, which meant that he came to where we were, enslaved, imprisoned, stuck. He came into our circumstance and he came on a mission. And the word it uses there is to redeem, to buy back. He came to pay a price for humanity. You notice that that word, we don't tend to to use the word redeem too much, do we? I suppose we may use it with a voucher or a coupon or something. I'd I'd like to redeem my free ice cream coupon or whatever. But but the, the meaning here is... Is that it's to buy back that thing of value, and and Jesus came to pay a price. He didn't come with a checkbook. He didn't come with a credit card to pay the price. The price that had to be paid was the price for the sin of this uh, enslaved, stuck humanity. All the things that we've ever said or done or thought of saying or wished we'd said or or kind of dreamed of doing. All the things that have crossed our minds and we've pondered and kind of relished inside our, of us. All the, the words that have uh, kind of spilled out of our lips and we've gone, oh, yikes, what was that? All of the yucky stuff, all of the gunk in our lives, all of the things we've done that we regret, all the things that we haven't done that we should have done, and even all the things we're proud of because we did them in our own strength and look how successful we are. Once you add that up, that's a massive, massive weight. That's a massive enslavement in trapping humanity. And Jesus came to redeem us. By coming to where we were, he came under the law into the circumstances where we were, and he paid the price that we could never pay. The, the great symbol of Christianity is the cross, right? You see people wearing it around their necks or on church signs or whatever. The, the cross was the worst form of capital punishment the Romans could come up with. It was the ultimate deterrent. It was the way they maintained the Roman peace across the empire, If you're living in the Roman Empire and you decide it's a good idea to steal or it's a good idea to to challenge their authority or it's a good idea to kill or or whatever the crime may be that, that kind of wells up within you, the Romans' best effort to stop you would be to let you have a visual aid of what's coming. So if we were in a, a Roman colony, we would see people nailed to a cross hung up naked uh, by their hands and their wrists, bleeding and, and suffering in, under the, the, the heat of the day and the cold of the night, the most agonizing possible death. And the Son of God chose to do that. When he had never done anything wrong, when he didn't deserve the slightest punishment, he'd never uh, put even one little finger out of place in his entire life. He'd lived a perfect, God-pleasing life, and yet he went to the cross. And he paid the ultimate price, which was his own life, to redeem us. That's amazing. That's love. 
That's an overwhelming, overpowering reality. So that even now, 2,000 years later, as we think about Jesus on the cross, those of us that are gripped and who love him and who are thankful to be in his family, it moves us. It's the most powerful thing in our lives. With all the other stuff that's going on, all the kind of multimedia, television, cinema, all the effects, all of that stuff, that can kind of wash over us. But when we stop and think about Jesus dying on the cross, it moves us because we know he did that for us. And so Paul says here, uh, he sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Wow, that's that's an amazing reality. A God who has forever been father and son offers us sonship. If we had 10 hours... I could barely scratch the surface of all that that means. Let me just say that if this was written today in our culture, it would probably have to use the language of uh, adoption as sons and daughters because sons and daughters are equal in our culture, right? I've got a son, I've got five girls, six children, all equal. There's no gender discrimination going on in any sense. And there's none here either. But in that time, in that culture... To be adopted as a son was to be given greater privileges. It was the son who would inherit everything. Now, we might disagree with that culturally, and I'm with you on that, but that's the way it was. And so when the Bible says that Jesus wanted us to receive adoption as sons, what it means is that we got the ultimate adoption. There's no higher place. So you could be a wealthy landowner, business owner, whatever. If you had no one to inherit all that is yours, you could adopt somebody. You could find someone that you trust, a servant or somebody, and you could adopt them legally and make them your son. And in that moment, their status would change. They would then be the inheritor of all that you own. They would have all of that authority, all of that wealth. Everything that's yours would become theirs. Now, that's pretty amazing on a human level, right? If you imagine some wealthy business owner, adopting you, Steve Jobs or somebody, that would have been an adoption, wouldn't it? You know, imagine having instant, immediate access to all of that. Well, here Paul's saying that Jesus came to give us adoption as sons of God. That's ultimate wealth, ultimate privilege, the ultimate positions. Everything that God has, everything that Jesus enjoys with his Father is offered to us. And so simply by accepting what he's done, by placing our trust in Jesus' death in our place, we are granted adoption as sons. We are given the full rights of sonness. I just made that word up, but but it kind of works, right? Full rights of sonship. A bit more technical. Full rights of Jesus given to people like you and me. How does that How does that? compute in any way? How is it possible for us to say, oh yeah, I get that? We don't get it. We'll spend the rest of eternity continuing to not get it, maybe a little bit less as Jesus uh, continues to show us what a wonder it is to be loved by his Father. But Jesus came, he was sent by God into this world to give us adoption as sons. 
That's a, an objective fact. It's a reality. That's what Jesus came for. That's why he was literally physically born in Bethlehem. That's why he literally physically died on the cross at Calvary. That's why he literally physically walked out of the tomb three days later, risen to life so that he could share his sonship with us. It's, it's reality. But the truth is, and I, I don't want to kind of air our dirty laundry in front of you today if you're a guest, but I'll just be honest with you. As Christians, we struggle to believe it. We struggle to kind of really grasp that that's true. We know it. We kind of, yeah, I can, I can explain it. I can write it down on an exam. I can, I can affirm it, but do I feel it? The truth is, for most of us, we, we kind of struggle to get our, our heads and our hearts around how much we are loved. Were we wanted? Absolutely. Look what Jesus did. But do we belong? I think for most people who are part of God's family, we, we would say, yes, I know God wanted to save me. I, that's been proven to me. Time and again, every time I hear about the cross, there's something within me that just goes... Yes, that's true. But do we belong? Don't feel like it. Remember the story of the prodigal son? It's a famous story Jesus told about a man who had two sons, and the younger son came to him and said, Father, give me everything that's coming to me when you die, but give it to me now, which is kind of like saying, you're not dying quick enough, so would you mind, let's just kind of cut a long story short. You give me all the stuff, and I'll leave, and we're both happy. Well, the truth was the father wasn't happy. But the son took everything, he got all of uh, that, that was coming to him, and he left and he went away and, and he spent it all and he just kind of squandered it all, lived this life that he'd been dreaming of living. And then it was all gone. And as he was in this pigsty in a foreign country, it says that he came to his senses. That is, he was working for a guy for room and board, but there was no board. Right, he got a place to stay with some pigs, but he couldn't even eat the pig food because he wasn't paid. And so it was a really rubbish job in terms of the scale of jobs. It was the worst job ever. So he came to his senses and he realized, my dad is a better employer than this chap here. He may not have used the word chap. So, so then he headed home. He headed back towards home because he had in his mind that that he could get paid, he could get some sort of job where his father would give him some money and he could kind of save some money and just live on super noodles or whatever and then you know, save the majority and eventually have some money and then he could pay his way. Maybe he'd go away again or maybe he'd pay back the debt, but, but he could do it. And it, the Bible tells us that when, when he came towards the town, his father was looking for him and his father saw him. And we, we call it the story of the prodigal son, but really it's the story of the prodigal father. Because the word prodigal means extravagant. He lived a prodigal life, right? He kind of went to Amsterdam and did that whole thing or whatever, and he spent all that he had. He was prodigal, but the father, he was more prodigal. He was more extravagant. Because he never forgot his son. He never accepted the, uh, the, 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 kind of the, the fact that the son should be shamed and dismissed and discarded and forgotten. And he kept looking for him and longing for him to come home. And then when he saw him, he ran to him and he hoisted up his robes and bared his legs, which no one does in the Middle East if you're a self-respecting gentleman. But he did it and he got to his son and it says he fell on his neck and he kissed him and he, and he just showered him with gifts, the finest robe and the shoes 
and the credit card or the ring or whatever it's called. And he gave him everything. And the son was brought in and he sat in the place of honor and they had this huge party and they celebrated. And and something happened there. Because when that son was walking back, he didn't feel like he deserved to be a son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It was part of his speech. Make me one of your hired servants. He didn't feel like he deserved to be a son. And so he had a plan B. But his father's plan was for him to be a son and to be welcomed and to have everything and to have the signet ring and the shoes and the row and to have all the privileges of sonship. So there's a difference. There's a difference between the way the son saw himself and the way the father saw him. And I think for many of us, even as Christians, we feel a bit like the prodigal son, don't we? We kind of feel like, yeah, God gives me all this stuff. It's incredible. I don't deserve it. But then we kind of dwell on the I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough. I don't live well enough. There's, there's too much yuck inside of me. There's too much, too much struggle, too much failure, too much. Uh, and we kind of talk ourselves out of it. And before we know it, we can find ourselves kind of sitting at the Father's table and just focus completely on ourselves. Oh, yeah, I know he's given me the ring. I know he's given me the robe. I know he's given me the shoes. But we're so focused on ourselves instead of being overwhelmed by his love. There's the fact of what the Father has done. There's the reality of what has happened. But we don't always feel it. And I think that's why this passage doesn't end with verses 4 and 5. God sent forth his son. That's not the whole story. Because God knows that we're going to struggle. God knows that we're going to kind of uh, dwell on our own failure. And so verse 6 and 7 tell us that God sent something else as well. Someone else. Look how much the Father's given. God sent forth his son into this world so that we could receive adoption as sons. But then, in verses 6 and 7, because we are sons, it says God has sent the Spirit of His Son, not into the world, but into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And the result of that is you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's the thing. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to offer us the privilege of a change of status, to take us from being rebels and enemies of God and to invite us into his family, a total status change. But then he knew that we'd struggle to accept it. And so he sent forth his spirit, not into the world like his son, but into our hearts. Because it's sometimes... uh, There are times often where we need more than simply the reality of who we are. We need the experience of sonship. I suppose I was thinking about this. You can imagine uh, Paul, imagine Paul walking down this pool, walking down the street with Nolan now, or Finley in a couple of years. And they're kind of walking side by side. And the fact is that Nolan or Finley or Lumiana, they are the children of Paul Rogers. That's a fact. That's a reality. But there are times where Paul will pick up Nolan or Finley or Lumiana and throw them in the air and grab them and tickle them and squeeze them and uh, and just hold them close. And in that moment, you know what that's like to watch that when a child is just giggling and kind of out of control, but totally safe. 
There's nowhere safer than in daddy's arms. There's nowhere more secure than being reassured that he loves you. It's a bit like when the prodigal son was walking back. And he didn't deserve to be a son. He was no longer worthy to be called a son. But what was the first thing the father did when he came? He fell on his neck and kissed him. It wasn't enough to re, kind of re, reinstate his, his status. It wasn't enough to just kind of do the paperwork. There needed to be that affection too. And that's what we've got here. God has sent his son so that the fact, the reality of the cross is established, that our status can be changed, that we can be adopted as sons. And God has sent forth his spirit because he knows that we need to be reassured. He knows that sometimes, maybe often, we're going to need the spirit right inside our hearts, crying. It's a really strong word. It's a cry like a, like a loud shout, crying within us, Abba, Father. I don't know if you experience that much. Maybe we'd all like to have it more. But, but there are moments that, that Christians can kind of say, yeah, yeah, I, I've been there. Moments where you're struggling, where you're kind of in the vortex of self, you know, and you're kind of like, oh, me, 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 me. And there are moments where you feel down on yourself and, oh, I'm ugly, I'm a failure, I'm not good enough, I've done it again, oh, I wish I'd stop doing that, why can't I break this cycle? And there's all these things kind of swirling and going on inside of us, and yet sometimes we get this tiny little hint. It's like a spring of water we looked at a couple of weeks ago or last week in, in John's gospel, this, this spring of living water within us. There's something within us that isn't us that just comes and bubbles out and says, Abba, Father. It's the cry of the Spirit of God's Son within our hearts, reaching out like Finley or Nolan might do to Paul, just reaching upwards and saying, I need that hug. Throw me, tickle me, squeeze me, whatever, but I need to feel the reality of your love. That's the Spirit of God working within us. It's not constant. It's not uh, all the time that we're overwhelmed with that. There'll be times where Christians get really depressed, really discouraged, really down, feel like we're under this big black cloud. But the Spirit of God still works, sometimes very gently, sometimes just a whisper, whispering the love of God into our hearts, assuring us that we're loved so that we can, with certainty, with confidence, not just live this life, but go to the other end of this life, or the opposite end from a dedication, I suppose, is a funeral. We can head towards our own funeral with confidence. Not just because of how we feel, because often the feelings are just a swirling mix of confusion. Sometimes we, we just go to the objective reality. Did Jesus come into this world? Did Jesus die on the cross? Was that a status change moment for me? Yes, yes, yes. And that sometimes that's what we cling to. But there are also moments where the Spirit who's been sent into our hearts just stamps that and underlines it and reassures us, God loves you. Call him Daddy. God loves you. Call him Abba. You can come to him, throw yourself at him, lift up your arms to him and let him embrace you. And we can go into eternity with confidence because if God's given his son 
and God's given his spirit, what more does he have to give? There's nothing. There's nothing else. Which is why for those of us that are in the family of God, we can sit around the kitchen table or around the Christmas tree or around the church building. We can sit around together and we can ask that question, was I wanted? And do I belong? And the truth is, yes, you are wanted. You were wanted. That's why God sent forth his son to die in your place and to give you adoption as sons. And do we belong? Yes, that's why God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts. So that the cry of God the Son to God the Father, the most perfect, wonderful, intimate relationship that there has ever been, can be a cry that wells up within us. We were wanted. We do belong. And that's the good news of Christianity. That's why we talk about people's lives being transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. Because God the Father sent forth His Son and sent forth His Spirit for us. Let me pray. Father, we just want to say thank you so much that we can just, we can just step into your presence and call you Daddy and say thank you so much for giving us your Son and for giving us your Spirit. Thank you so much for making us sons and daughters of God. Thank you so much for embracing us and pouring out your love into our hearts. And Lord, our, our prayer is this. For those of us that know you and already know that we're part of the family, we pray that you would reassure us. We pray that we would experience even more of that cry of the Spirit within us. The Abba, Father cry inside our hearts that can only come from your Spirit. Lord, we long for more of that. We ask you to help us cling on to the reality of the cross and what that means. And Lord, for those that are here who, who are kind of looking in and going, this is interesting. I didn't realize Christianity was about that. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, continue to drive this reality home. Just uh, cause them to think about you and to, to ponder the cross and to, to think about what it would be like to be embraced by the God who created everything. And Lord, I pray that every one of us here would have a deep sense of assurance, just as we know Finley will have, and Lumiana and Nolan in, in their family, deep assurance that they were wanted and that they belong. Lord, we pray that that would be true for us, that we were wanted by you, and that we belong in your family, that you love us, that we're yours, that we're safe. Pray that that truth would just grip us afresh. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.